Amen. You can grab a seat. We are uh, in week two of our summer series called The Gathered Church. We're spending the next few weeks really touching on some topics that are essential to the makeup of a New Testament church. I'm thankful for Greg teaching last week and really describing what we do in our gathering, our intentionality behind why we do what we do, and ultimately our desire to experience the presence of God with us, calling us to worship uh, each, uh, each of us, calling us all to worship Him, calling us to seek Him. And uh, if you've been with us for any length of time, um, I, I think when we look back at the initial days talking about ecclesia, uh, in some ways, we were rea- reacting to some of the upbringing and culture that we brought up where Sunday was the main event in some ways. Like everything centered around Sunday and the other six days of the week really didn't matter. And what we really want to say, and, and ultimately as maybe we come to more correct posture, is all seven days of the week matter. And Sunday matter. And, and Sunday's essential, and what we do in this room's essential, but this is meant to be a launching point, a sending place that really sends us out to live out the other six days of the week, glorifying God the Father, on mission for God the Father, and, and ultimately that, that this would be a sending place. And so we really see all the days of the week matter, uh, but we also see a de-emphasizing in our culture of the Sunday gathering. And so we really wanted to come back and say, What's essential about Sunday? What's important about Sunday? And why are we coming together? Why are we here as the gathered people? Why us in this room? And I, I just thought of some, some questions and, and just in, in, in a way of response. I was thinking the church is going to be persecuted in the years to come. Why should we be a part of it? The church will experience hardship you will experience hardship just because you belong to this family. Why stay committed? The church will challenge our individuality. Why pursue community? The church will challenge our convictions. Why be open to teaching and preaching? And, and really what we're going to be discussing is why we believe what we believe and what we should value as the gathered people of God. And as Greg discussed last week, kind of the, the liturgy, the, 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 the elements of our gathering and how we gather and what we're desiring here to do, our hope is uh, that we're going to kind of unfold two practices within that, Lord's Supper and baptism. Uh, and those are the two practices that we're going to speak on here in the next few weeks. And what you're going to see is all of these kind of hang together. So we're going to talk about Lord's Supper, and we're going to talk about baptism, and we're going to talk about membership, and we're going to talk about all these different elements within our family of like, what, what is it that we're called to be and do? Now, I'm going to say out of the gates this morning that some of you are going to be sweating by the end of this morning. Some of you are going to be sweating because you're like, I think he's spoken for an hour now, and I'm still trying to maintain my kids. And so know that you're going to be sweating, some of you, from that perspective. Some of you are going to be sweating this morning um, from the sense of, doctrinally, I'm going to touch on some things that are probably going to push on some of your buttons a little bit. And if you've been grown, like you've been raised in maybe a traditional religious Baptist home, I, I may push against some of the things that you feel like you've always believed. Now, if you've been a part of Ecclesia for any given amount of time, we love the wrestle, and we want you to wrestle. And I want to challenge what you believe. So I'm happy to platform things that we are currently wrestling through, just so that you will wrestle as well. And I want you to know that, that if you're here this morning, and you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about in the Lord's Supper, that this is a great place to wrestle. This is a great place to come and discover why do we believe the things we believe and to wrestle with those things and then for us to come to some conclusions together as a family and then proceed to move forward. Now, the Lord's Supper alone is a, a time to come together 
as, as the people of God to come to a meal that would ultimately bring about unity, but this is one of the very things that has been divisive within church history. One of the main purposes of the Lord's Supper is unity, but one of the things that Paul's going to speak to in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is the disunity in the church. We're going to get to that here in a second. But maybe you're here and you're like, why in the world should I listen up? And here's why. This meal that we get to partake in called the Lord's Supper each and every week, which I would, we don't participate in each and every week, but we should. That's one thing. Some of you are like, I don't think we should. Great, we're going to wrestle, like I said. It, it's meant to be a gift. Here's what John Calvin said. The devil, knowing that our Lord left nothing more beneficial to the church than the, this holy sacrament, the Lord's Supper, according to his accustomed manner, exerted himself from the beginning to contaminate it with errors and superstitions and to corrupt and to destroy its fruit and has not ceased to pursue this course until he has almost wholly subverted the sacrament of the Lord and converted it into falsehood and vanity. What's he saying here? He's ultimately saying that this meal that we get to come and we get to partake, the enemy is out to destroy the gift that it is to the church. The enemy will do everything possible to create division within the church about what the significance of this table is, what are we taking, what are we doing, what is its purposes, how often, how frequent, in what ways, who should be able to participate. There's so many different questions, and, and we can wrestle with it, and we can debate it. I remember one person said, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, not debate this in remembrance of me. And it's been a common place of disagreement within the church of what this is. And because of that, maybe our posture in receiving it is not actually what the Lord would desire of us. So I hope that there would maybe be some course correction in us this morning and that we would really begin to wrestle with what is the significance of this table? Who does get to participate in this table? What, what, where is the, where's the, the beginning? Where did this start? Why do we take wine and bread? What is the significance of that? And that's what we're going to begin to wrestle with. And Greg mentioned last week, uh, I can't remember if he spoke about alliteration being positive or negative, but that's how I do it. And uh, so I, when I thought about all the things which out of the gates, I could tell you this could be like a seven-week sermon series on the Lord's Supper, and, I'm, and I'm, I've packaged it in a way, and so you're like, I may not hit on your soapbox issue this morning, and we can still converse afterwards, all right? But I gave it the four Ps, all right? The four Ps. What is the priority of this table? What are the purposes of this table? Who are the people that get to participate in this table? And then lastly, what is the posture in which we come to this table? And that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at a lot of different scripture. This is topical in nature. We're not looking at one chunk of scripture this morning. So we're going to be covering a lot of ground. So take some notes, write some things down, and, uh, and that's where we're going to be going. My hope and desire in all of this is that this table would be more significant to you. I think when we read John Calvin's quote about it, it being moved to a place of vanity is that some would view this table as worthless, meaningless. I think there's some that maybe overemphasize this table. I grew up Catholic, and so I remember being there and, and bringing the, I, I actually went through all the, the uh, kind of the, the beginnings of what it means to be an altar boy, and so I would participate in that, and I would bring out the sacraments, and, and they would bless it, and what the, the Catholics believed these elements were, and we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. I mean, there was a, an overemphasizing of this table, but I feel like for, for most of us, 
It's a, it's a de-emphasizing of this table. And Donald Bridge in, the, in, in his book said, the mill that unites. He says, people have been imprisoned, whipped, tortured, and burned alive because of different opinions surrounding communion. Amazing that people would go through that for this. Why? So, we're going to be looking at what does the Bible teach about the Lord's Supper? First thing, priority. When did the Lord's Supper become a significant biblical rhythm in church life? Part of knowing the significance of this table is to know its origin. When did this begin? And for us to really know that, we have to go back all the way to Exodus chapter 12 and Exodus 13. In Exodus chapter 12 and 13, for the sake of time, I'll share with you is the story of the Passover. So the Israelites have just been set free from Egypt, and as they come out, there, it was the Passover. One of the last plagues was the death of the firstborn. And so the Israelites were to take a lamb without blemish, and they were to take the blood of the lamb, and that, that blood would be put on the doorpost, the mantle of the house. And when the angel of the Lord passed through the city, that, that blood was to be a sign. It was to be a symbol, and that they would see that blood, they would see that symbol, and he would pass over that house. Death would not come to that house. They would be saved by the blood of the Lamb. And so to mark that and to symbolize that, there was a Passover meal. There was a celebration. There was the Feast of Unleavened Bread that would take place. And you can read about this all in Exodus 12 and 13. And, and the Passover feast. And they would celebrate this meal together. And if, if, if we were to look at early church history, we would see year after year after year this celebration of Passover, where they would celebrate their deliverance from being enslaved by the Egyptians and them being set free and led by God to the promised land. This would be a celebration that they would mark on each and every year. And if we look at the history of the Passover meal, we would see that there would be bread that was broken at that meal. We would see that there would be multiple cups that were symbolic. And, and we would see that all of this symbolism will then move forward to what we see in Jesus' time. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 26, he's celebrating the Passover. And so he, we, this goes all the way back to Exodus 12 and 13 in the Old Testament. And we see Jesus here in Matthew 26, 17. It says, now on the first day of unleavened bread, they're, they're celebrating this feast. The disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? To be a good Jew, you would, you would celebrate the Passover. You'd come together that you would remember each and every year. And so here is this meal of remembrance, this meal of, of reminding each other of the deliverance. And, and what Jesus is going to do is Jesus is going to give that Passover meal new significance and new meaning. He says in verse 18, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did just as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now you jump down to verse 26 through 29. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where, where will you have us? Actually, I don't have the, I, that's the same verse I just read. Let me look up here. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing, it broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom." What we see here is that Jesus is bringing new significance, new meaning to the cup and, and, and to the, the, the cup of wine. And this would be his blood. This would be a picture not only of deliverance when we look back at the Passover, but this is going to be deliverance of sin. That he's going to come as the Passover lamb. That he's going to sacrifice. His body is going to be broken as the bread was broken, and he's bringing new meaning, new significance to these elements. 
And he says to do this in remembrance of him and so that it would be done frequently. We, we see back when we think about the priority of this and how often we see in Acts 2 that Greg taught on last week that the breaking of bread was done regularly. It was done in many times, we look in the New Testament church, that it was done weekly, that they would come together reminding each other regularly of Jesus' broken body and blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And so we see this as an early church practice that would continue on and that this would bring new significance and meaning to what has been practiced in the Passover year after year after year after year. The reason I tell you that is because I want us here in just a few minutes to go back and look who participated in the Passover meal because that may give us some understanding of who is allowed to participate in this table. And that's what we're going to wrestle with. The next reference we got is, is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and this is a text here where, where Paul, and this is one of the most significant teachings on the Lord's Supper, where Paul is beginning to instruct the early church on what this meal's about, and, and, and there's a lot of uh, discrepancies and misunderstanding in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll read it to us. It's verse 17 through 29. And then we'll talk about it here briefly. It says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in this first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Now, that's interesting because he's about to describe the Lord's Supper. Let me tell you a little bit what's going on, and then we'll jump back in the text. What's, what's happening here is the, the poor, uh, more like working class people in the community, there, there, there was some division amongst who was actually coming to the Lord's table. So the wealthier class of people... The division that's happening here is they're showing up early, they're partaking of this meal, they're partaking of what is the Lord's Supper, and what Paul says is there's a de-emphasizing of the Lord's Supper. What you're eating is not the Lord's Supper, that's what he tells them. Like what you're eating is a meal. If you're going to eat a meal, eat a meal at your house. Don't come and, and expect this to be that, that same environment. And so there's, there's some wrestle here. It says, when you come together, is it not the Lord's Supper that you eat? And what's, what's happening is that the, the wealthier class is coming together and they're partaking and they're getting full and they're getting drunk on, on this meal and it's not allowing room for those who are in the poor working class to come in and experience. So there's some division and disunity about who's coming to this table. And the very thing that Paul is wanting to address is, is this, this is meant to be a table of unity. This is meant to be a table where the family of God comes together. We're going to talk about that. He goes on. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. And, he, and here he goes, and, and his desire is, how he is, is hoping to unite the church is to remind them of what this table's all about. And that's what I, I, I think is interesting and something for us to lean in is going, this table is meant to be a table of unity. It says, For I received from you what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the, blood, the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so 
eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have died. Now, he speaks a lot here about the frequency in which we do it. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. He talks about the disunity that is there that there are some who are not able to come to the table because you're, you're partaking of this table with, with just a set group of people rather than inviting the entire family to the table. And so we, we see this, and, and these are the three areas when we go back to the Passover meal, when we look at Matthew chapter 26 with Jesus participating in Passover and giving new significance and meaning, and then we see Paul directing it. So this kind of sets the stage for us, Okay. You're like, man, this is a lot. Hang with me. This, uh, this kind of just sets the, the, the stage for where we're headed. What are the purposes? And that's where I, I want us to spend our next few moments. What purposes does the Lord's Supper hold as a biblical rhythm of church life? Now, what's interesting is this is a meal, right? And, and you're like, well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't get full. I, absolutely. Greg tells a great story of where like he was taking communion as a kid and he, he was hungry and he went in where they put the remaining like bread and he ate all the communion bread. All right. In a way, like we're not going to get full on this meal, but it is a meal. And when we look at the context of meals all throughout the biblical context, you don't typically share meals with enemies. A meal is meant to unify people. And when we see this in the context of the Passover, like you're celebrating this, this feast with family, with friends. This is people that you look across, people you love, people you're unified with. It's meant to be a unifying table. When you think back of some of the most like iconic meals you ever had, they were probably because of, one, the food was awesome, the environment was awesome, and the people you were with, it was awesome. And, and that's what's meant to happen in the Lord's table, that there is meant to be a unifying factor that when we come to the table together, that we would see that as this bread, as, as, as uh, one scholar described, it said that all of the grains of a field would come together to make this loaf. And that's a great picture of what it is that all of us from different backgrounds, different upbringings, different, we come together and we're to, to take of the one body of Christ and that it would be unifying in this room. This is how we, we come together. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, Paul is, is instructing here. He's saying, I'm writing to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such one. And he's, it's this picture of like, we don't share meals. I'm not saying you don't hang out with an unbeliever or someone who, who's not a follower of Jesus. But it's a, it's a, it's a picture of, of this idea that we, we are to come together and we share a meal and that it's meant to be shared across a table and that in many ways, if we were to practice this, we would do this over a course of a meal and that we would be unifying in its nature. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17, it says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body for we all partake of the one bread. So it's, it's this idea, one of the purposes of this is unity. One of the purposes of this is nourishment. We joked about Greg getting full on the communion bread. And, and there's a sense of going, it is Jesus who sustains us. It is Jesus who strengthens us. It is Jesus who feeds us. And while we today partake of this and, and we taste of this and we sense this, that we recognize there will be one day where we see Jesus face to face and that he will satisfy all of our appetites, all of our longings, that it is he and he alone who satisfies us. 
In 1 Corinthians 10, 16, a much debated topic on the idea of communion, it says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And that word participation is quantania, fellowship. This is this idea of like, is, is not this cup of blessing, this, this, this wine that we drink, it says, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? Is it not fellowship with Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Is it not fellowship with Christ? And so here's where we get the four views of communion. Four purposes, four views, four significant things. Lots of fours today. But the idea is like, what is it that we take at this table and how do we experience the presence of Christ in a real and tangible way when we partake of communion? There is a participation, there is a fellowship that happens, 1 Corinthians 10, 16, that happens when we take of this cup, when we take of this bread, that there is some fellowship with Jesus. Now, the four views are, we go to the Roman Catholics, there's this transubstantiation. Trans means, means change. Substantiation means substance. It actually, the Roman Catholics believe that the actual wine and bread change into Jesus. You're like, this, that's kind of strange. I'm, I'm with you. But they're not saying like in its form, but the very essence, the very makeup of those things become Christ himself. And that when we take of it, we're actually eating the body and and blood of Jesus. That's what Roman Catholics believe. Our Lutherans, Martin Luther, it was one who really made this view known. Consubstantiation, con meaning together and substantiation still meaning substance. Luther saw that rather than changing completely, the substance of the bread and wine coexist with the body and blood of Christ. Jesus is present in, and he's under the bread and wine, and basically here's the description. Here's here's how people have described it. They use this analogy of like a sponge in water. The sponge isn't the water, the water isn't the sponge, but the two are together with each other. And this is this picture that Lutherans believe. That it's this idea of consubstantiation that somehow it, it's still bread, it's still wine, but in some way it becomes Christ. All right? The Baptist view, Holdrick Zwingli, what a great name if you're looking for names to, to name your kids. He believed in memorialism. And memorialism is basically is it doesn't actually become Christ. It doesn't actually become the blood of Jesus. It doesn't become the body of Jesus. But it's it's meant to be a symbol and and we simply just remember Jesus. It's meant to be a a point of just reminding ourselves cognitively, mentally, that we go back and we turn over in our heads that this is Jesus' body broken for us. It's meant to be symbolic. A lot of people hold to this view. The Reformed view brought under John Calvin, which many Presbyterian and Reformed churches believe, is the spiritual presence or the, the real presence view. It's, yes, they are symbols, but they actually bring to us an experience, a real tangible experience of the presence of Jesus in our midst. Now, We could debate all of these all day. We could give points and reasoning why. Most important thing behind all of this, when we partake of this meal, Christ is present with us. That's what's most important. Christ is presence with us. His presence is with us. It is a gift. It is an experience of the Holy Spirit actually filling and indwelling this room when we get to come and take of it, that we experience that it is participation, as it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, that it is participation with Christ himself. So what a gift. Which means when we get to come to this table, it's a gift. We get to experience Jesus, and it feeds us, and it nourishes us, and it strengthens us 
as we experience his presence. We need the reminder and symbolic nature of what is represented in these elements. But more than that, we need Jesus himself. One of the other purposes is remembrance. Not only is it unity, not only is it nourishment, but it's, it's remembrance. That it is a time to look back. When we think about the Passover meal, the Passover meal was something symbolic to look back and remember the setting free from slavery. And this is a picture of being set, in, set free from our sinful hearts, our sin nature, that Christ's body being broke, that we have forgiveness of sins that we are to remember that, and that too nourishes us. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five, 25, it says, in the same way he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. It's a way to look back and remember. But I also want to say this, because I came across some, some interesting um, observations in, in terms of remembrance, because it's not only remembrance for us, but it's remembrance for God. And you're like, well, I didn't know God was forgetful. Let's break this down, okay? When we look back, we see, do this in remembrance of me. When we look at this phrase, it, it, it really breaks down, do this as my memorial. Do this in a way that remembers, that reminds what is happening, and we look at other signs, when we go back to the Passover, who was the, the blood on the doorpost, who was it a sign for? It wasn't a sign for the Israelites, it was a sign for the Lord to know, to pass over. It was a reminder, in a, in a way, that he would see that. We, we've constantly thought, I've, I've always looked back, and many of you, you know, if it rains and there's a rainbow, you look at that and you go, oh, it's a sign. But go back and read the story. Who's it a sign for? It wasn't necessarily a sign for us that we would be reminded and remember the promises of God. It literally says it was a sign for him, that he would be reminded of his covenant with us. That when we come together and that we partake of this meal, that it's not so much a sign for us, although it is, to remember what God has accomplished for us on the cross, but it's also a reminder. It's reminding God of what is true. It is reminding him that I'm no longer in my sin, that Jesus Christ's blood has covered my sin, that Jesus was the full payment for my sin. And because of that, I stand before you as a person who is viewed righteous, although practically unrighteous, we're viewed righteous because of the blood of Jesus. It is a reminder for him. And so we come together and we're renewing that covenant with God when we come into this room and we partake of this meal, that we're reminded of our right standing before God God, that we're reminded of our acceptance before God the Father, and that as we come, that we leave in peace. What a gift. It's a remembrance. The last thing, though, it's a proclamation. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. 26, it says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's why we're careful about who partakes in this table, because you're proclaiming something. You're saying something. And it's more than just saying a creed or reciting something. You're actually participating in. And so what are we proclaiming? What are we proclaiming in this? And, and one, we're proclaiming that it is the power of Christ that, that sets us free, that it is the power of Christ that sustains us, but it also is we're proclaiming something about the, the future of what is, what is coming for those who are faithful followers of Jesus, that there one day will be a day, as Jesus said, that we will drink this cup together that there one day will be a day where we gather around a table, another meal, which is awesome because there's a point which we come and we partake of this table each and every week, and it's symbolic of the fact that we are going to be there, that there's going to be a time where we all sit around a table, where we all enjoy this feast, where we get to enjoy the presence of Jesus in our midst. And that, that even right then, that it's a picture, we're proclaiming this future reality. We're proclaiming to a world that we are a unified body, 
We're proclaiming to a world that it is Jesus and Jesus alone that saves. We're proclaiming to the world that there one day will be a day where we all come before judgment. And depending on what we do with Jesus determines where we spend eternity. And so it's a proclamation. Now, the next question we're going to get to, there's our four purposes, is the people. Who may participate in the Lord's Supper as a biblical rhythm of church life? And this is where it may get a little touchy. Who gets to participate? Let me give you some options. All baptized believers. Okay? All baptized believers from any church. So can anyone and everyone from any church anywhere in the world come and partake of this table? Some places they say no. Some places they say yes. What about children? That's why I said it was important to go back and look at the Passover meal. When we look at the Passover meal and the history and rhythms and practices, Passover was celebrated amongst families. There were kids. It was a a family meal. When we look at the table that Jesus shared, it, it was a family meal. It wasn't coming together at a church gathering like this and walking up and taking, you know, a, a wafer and grape juice. It, it was a family meal. And we must ask ourselves, if, if it's a family meal, do we exclude our children? I, if you're here and, and you have kiddos with you and you're, you're, you're partaking of communion, One of the questions we get very often uh, from our kiddos is like, why can't I participate? And I'll be honest with you, I kind of wrestled with the answer. I don't know that I had a great answer. I was like, well, because one, you're, you're not a part of the family of God. Like, I want you to come into the family. Well, if you ask my boys, like you ask my daughter, they're like, well, I believe that. I'm part of the family. And, and there's ways in which I felt like I maybe put up walls against them of going like, well, no, 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 like, you haven't, you haven't actually, I need you to believe this, I need you to do this, I need you. And one of the things I came to wrestle with as I, as I wrestled this week, when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, what are they doing? They're keeping people from the table. Are we disobeying what Paul's instruction in 1 Corinthians 11 by withholding children to be able to come and partake of this table? And maybe you're like, no, well, great. I'm glad you have that confidence. We're, you, we should talk and we should wrestle through this. Now, here's what I would do. If I, if I would give you some clarity this morning, I do believe that it should be those who have been baptized into the family of God. Now we get to wrestle with who should be baptized. Should we baptize children? And if you've grown up in maybe the Baptist tradition, or very traditional churches, like that, maybe that has in some Reformed, Presbyterian, Lutheran churches, Catholic churches, but maybe some of us come from like, absolutely not. We believe in believer's baptism, credo-baptism. We don't believe in infant baptism and pedo-baptism. And that's what we get to talk about next week. And we get to wrestle through why, why we believe what we believe about baptism and, and, and how do we want to see a way forward in that. But there are some when I look at the rhythms and practices of the feast in the Bible, children were participating in those feasts. Children were participating in those meals. In fact, it was regularly said that when your children ask of you why you partake of this, why we're participating in this, tell them this. And so it was meant to be instructing in nature that you would come together, that there would be participation. But for some reason in our you know, recent times, we've chosen not to allow children to participate. Now, if we were to say, which I will fully agree, I believe that those who participate should be baptized into the family, well, then that makes us question, well, should we baptize at an earlier age? And that's what we get to wrestle with next week. We got to wrestle, guys. Like, the Bible, we, we may be here today and you're like, well, you know, the church I grew up in or the church down the street, and to be really honest, like, I'm, I don't really care what the church down the street does. 
What I want to do, I believe church history is important and we should look at church history as a whole and wrestle with some of the things that church history as a whole wrestled with. But I think we should do like the Bereans in Acts 17. We should wrestle with the scriptures daily. We should search the scriptures daily to seek how we will proceed as the Lord's church in this given time, in this given context. We get to wrestle with that. And already, some of the wrestle is causing some of us to sweat in the room. Now, what I want us to do is we have to ask some questions. Are we truly a Christian community that includes all members of this family? That's a question we should wrestle with. In what ways are we saying to certain members of the family, by not allowing them to participate, that we don't need you or you're not important to this family? And I think that's something we wrestle with. And if you're here today and you're like, well, I don't have kids, so this topic isn't really important to me. Well, that's because we need to help fill out your understanding of what it means to be a family because you're unified with the body of Christ. When you come and take this table with my kiddos and Greg's kiddos and Wes's kiddos and Josh's kiddos and Chris's kiddos, like they're your family. And many of you will play a major discipleship role in their lives as we navigate life as a family. So they are integral, essential members of our family. How do we value them when it comes to this table? And if we prevent children from participating in communion, are we guilty of not recognizing the full body of Christ representative here? Now, we'll get into more of the nitty-gritty of like baptism next week. We have traditionally held to a belief that of, of believer's baptism, and we hold that like when we read the book of Acts, we see that this pattern of they believed and they were baptized. But we also see that's a period of time where the gospel was moving out to a Gentile nation. They weren't brought up into a religious community where these were practiced regularly. They weren't brought up in a covenant family. So we get to wrestle with that, and we get to discover who's it for. In fact, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven, if we ask, like, do we have any prescribed, like, are there texts that say who this table's for? It just says in eleven twenty seven, whoever. Which is probably some of the reason why we debate this, right? Who is the whoever? Whoever therefore eats this bread or drinks this cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now, let me, let, me, let me say this real quickly about this because some go, well, there's obviously a discerning that must take place in the life of a person coming to this table. We're gonna get to this in posture, the last one, that must take place for someone to do it. And if a child were to do it and not be able to introspectively look into his life and see if they're doing it in an unworthy manner, then they would be practicing this in an unworthy way. And so there, there we see, and that's one of the major cases that people give against not allowing children to come to the table, is because they, they don't have the essential understanding of what they must wrestle through. But here's the truth. There are some of you who are adults who are just walking in the room who I would frankly just question whether or not you know how to do that. And so should we withhold it from you? And that's the wrestle, Right? Good things. You leave today and you're leaving with more questions than you have answers, right? That's good. Moving on, posture. How does one participate in the Lord's Supper as a biblical rhythm of church life? Now, how many of you, your typical understanding of the Lord's Supper is it's very somber, it's very quiet, eyes closed, looking inward, and, and, and like, this is, this is how I experienced it. But there, when I read the text and when I, when, I, when I study of like what this is meant to be, look back at the Passover feast. What was the Passover feast? The Passover was meant to be a celebration, right? A celebration of deliverance. And this is meant to be a picture of celebration of deliverance. So why is it not a celebration? Like, we, we come to the table and we barely look each other in the eye. Like, don't make eye contact. Like, you know, and, and 
you're, you're meant to like turn inward and you're to repent of all and every sin that you've committed this week. And it, it's just meant to be, and, and we're, we're kind of move into a context of like, this is a funeral. We're to remember the, the agony that Jesus experienced and, and like, this is where we go. And I think that's a part of it. So I'm not dismissing that total, totally. One person said, our, our posture is we look up, we look in, we look back, we look around, we look ahead. I think this, this is helpful. We look up, God has prepared the feast. We look in, there is some self-examination. We look back, we look at what he did on the cross. We look around, we're part of a body of Christ. We look ahead to the marriage feast, the celebratory nature of what's to come. Greg Allison says this in his book, Sojourners and Strangers. He says, the eschatological depth, and you're like, what? And what? The, the study of the end times. What's going to happen in the end? The eschatological depth of the Lord's Supper needs to find expression in the church's observance. He's basically like, hey, where this leads us needs to be experienced amongst the body of Christ. Practically speaking, this can be accomplished with particular regard to the tenor or atmosphere in which the ordinance is administered. The Lord's Supper should be a celebration. It's not a funeral, a time to feel sorry for Jesus who died. Neither is it mere remembrance of Jesus and his death. Furthermore, it is not, as presented above, a time for morbid introspection leading to feelings of remorse over personal sins. Neither is it a celebration of its own good fellowship. Rather, the Lord's Supper is a proliptic celebration of victory because Jesus, through his sacrificial death that has defeated sin and death, will return to establish the kingdom of God in its fullness." While the atmosphere in which the church administers in the Lord's Supper must, must be decorous and respectful, it should also express a vibrant celebration of both past and future realities wrought by Jesus Christ. We should be cheering, celebratory for what this table means. And, but for some reason, it's like the music goes down, the tone goes down. And Josh asked me if I was going to make fun of him today because I, just because I typically do. And so I decided to because I saw Josh up here for the first time singing at this mic. And he clapped his hands. That's like the most movement out of Josh you'll ever see. And I loved it because that's what we're to be doing. We're to be praising God for the fact of what he's accomplished and what we get to come and participate in this meal. It's celebratory. Yes, it's a time to look back. Yes, it's a time to look and, and to do so in an unworthy manner because that's the text. What does that mean? It doesn't necessarily mean that like, I need to make sure like, my motives are correct, my heart's correct. It's basically just saying, don't come to the table if you're mad at someone across the room. Don't come to the table when there's disagreements here in the body. Go and work that out with your neighbor. It, it's saying the, the, the issue and the context that Paul's referencing because we've used so much of 1 Corinthians 11 to fence this table off and say, don't come to this table unless you have the perfect heart, the right heart, you know, and I'm like, here's the deal. You are unworthy to come to this table. But in Jesus Christ, what he accomplished for and what we're declaring and what we're proclaiming when we come to this table is that he made us worthy. And it's because he made us worthy. It's because he's united us. Ephesians 2 that we looked back talking a few weeks ago at family. The reason why this table is what this table does and what this table accomplishes is it makes a body. And where there's disagreements in the body, where the family of God is experiencing divisiveness, we can't proclaim what this table is actually meant to proclaim. And so... This morning, I, I simply just want to close with 
let's celebrate. Let's celebrate what this table means. Let's celebrate regularly what this table means. Let's celebrate the fact that when we come to this table, it's a reminder of the gospel, the good news of Jesus for us, for his church. Will we have disagreements about many of the things I talked about today? Absolutely. And we, we can wrestle with those in a kind and loving way. And I think anybody who stands up and says that they have the definitive mark on this is what it says and this is what it means, I would probably disagree with you just because many people across history, wiser and smarter than any of us in the room, have wrestled this. We're probably not going to figure it out. But the mystery of it all is when we come to this table, it's celebratory in nature, it's uniting in nature, but the presence of Christ meets us. So here in just a few moments, the worship team is going to come back up and play. And it's going to be really hard, but I I feel like there's probably, you're you're probably going to walk to the table, everyone's going to be really quiet. And I don't know how we break out of that. I wish I, like there was a great way in which, but but I'm like, we got to break out of that because of what it declares. So if you know a way to lead in that, you get to lead in that as we come to the table here in a few minutes. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you have created ways in which we get to come together and be reminded that we get to come together and feast on you, that we get to feast on what you accomplished, and that one day we look forward to the celebratory feast that we will share in your presence. So, Father, thank you. Lord, that you would, here in the next few moments, that you would change our posture, that you would bring us to this table in a way that does cause us to look back, look up, look around, look within. Lord, help us to just be reminded of all the gospel goodness that this table brings to us, the gift this table is to us. And that you would just remind us, Lord, that, that, Lord, you have bought our unity our togetherness. You have broken your body to create a new body. And so, Lord, may we seek unity with one another in this room. We pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen.